Well, you can turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9 and Matthew 4. You should have enough fingers for those. Isaiah chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 4. Isaiah 9, Advent uh, simply means coming or arrival. It is a season of anticipation, of waiting, of longing. Sometimes I'm asked as a pastor if we should observe Advent. I don't think we're bound to, biblically or scripturally. It's not part of the regular principle, in other words, I don't think. But it does provide us some more intentional time to reflect on our Lord's first Advent and long for His second coming. This year we are looking at the prophets of Advent, Old Testament ministers who in their own way foresaw the coming of the King and His kingdom. Last week we considered Jeremiah in the picture He was given of the righteous branch, Jesus Christ, who has come to be, praise be to God, the sinner's righteousness. Today we consider Isaiah. Like Jeremiah, Isaiah in his own way foresees the coming king. He's told what God will do in, quote, the latter days when a child is born and a son is given. Six names. Jesus is given six names, titles, in Isaiah 9, which will comprise our exposition uh, this morning. So stand with me, if you would. Isaiah chapter 9, and hopefully you have a finger by now in Matthew chapter 4. We'll be reading each, each of these. Isaiah 9, 1 to 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire." To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this in Matthew chapter 4. 
verses 12 to 17. Then when they heard that John had been arrested, that's John the Baptist, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the living God. I like that. Well done. That is the word of God. Say it with gusto. Well, I want to talk to you a little bit, make a couple of comments about the background of Isaiah 9. I initially set out to preach Isaiah 9. I thought, oh, this is what a wonderful passage, familiar, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Then I got into the weeds of the, of the context, and uh, it's a little bit more difficult. Uh, there's a context to this statement here we find in these names. So I want to say a couple of words about the background, namely the author and the context of Isaiah's message. And then we will look at the six names, okay? So if you're taking notes, boys and girls, just label it point number one, background, and point number two, um, six names of the coming king. Okay, background. The author is Isaiah. His name means the Lord saves. He is a well-educated aristocrat with access to the king and his royal court. Isaiah was married with two children, so he's probably a prosperous man in some way. He was married with two children, but tradition has it that Isaiah was martyred by being sawed in two at the beginning of Manasseh's reign. That might be who Hebrews 11 is referring to, um, of those who died in faith being sawed in two. Isaiah ministers for more than 40 years, 740 B.C. to 695 B.C., his call coming in that famous chapter 6 where God commissions Isaiah to bring a message of judgment and salvation, which, by the way, is the message of every minister of the gospel. It is a message of sin. It is a message of grace. Context of Isaiah chapter 9. During Isaiah's early years in ministry, God's people enjoyed peace and stability. Israel and Judah lived virtually uh, in prosperity and peace and stability. They had regained some of those lost territories um, post-Solomon, but in these days, in Isaiah's day, at least at the beginning of it, they reclaimed many of those lost boundaries. So life was prosperous. King Uzziah made Israel great again. You can laugh at that. Unfortunately, I'm not making any political statements, by the way, uh, for that. 
Um, unfortunately, Israel's greatness was only skin deep. The inside of the cup, as Jesus refers to, was filthy. In chapter 1, 10 to 15, Isaiah condemns hypocrisy among the leaders. In chapter 5, verse 8, it's greed. In chapter 5, verse 11, it's self-indulgence. So you have expressive individualism as alive as it was in Isaiah's day as it is today. The rich were prospering, but the poor and widowed were being fleeced. They were being oppressed. Hear this. Prosperity had eaten away. Affluence had eaten away at true religion. So much so that the people confessed with their lips that the Lord was their king, but in their hearts, he was far from them. I just want to look at one section of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 1. Turn with me there to get a picture of the state of God's people at this time. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. Isaiah 1, 12. When you come to appear before me, this is Isaiah preaching on behalf of God. Who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incense as an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, which, by the way, were ordained and implemented by God. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates They have become a burden to me, the Lord says, and I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, when you pray, I will hide my face or I I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. It was all a sham. It was all a sham. Going to church with no desire to walk in God's ways. And so in concert with the covenant curses, Deuteronomy 28, God raises up Assyria to judge his people. Chapter 8, verse 22. Read with me. 8:22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's the context of which this exposition of the coming king 
is placed. Isaiah and his people, or God's people, are embroiled in sin. And they need a Redeemer. Now, chapter 9, verse 1, begins Isaiah's main exposition of the coming king, mainly his first message. And he says, this is still part of context here, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Now, stop just there. If you're anything like me, you're like, where's that? What is the land of Zebulun? I can hardly pronounce it. Where is this place? Well, Zebulun and Naphtali are the most northern provinces in the whole land of Israel. Okay? Which means, you're probably thinking, great, good geography. Which means they are the closest to foreign armies. They will be the first to be invaded and suffer when invasion comes. Like I just said, the particular invasion Isaiah is referring to here is in 735 when the king of Assyria, Tiglath III, and his cruel armies invade these territories, Zebulun and Naphtali, 2 Kings 15. Along with destroying homes, families, and crops, hear this, the worst devastation is when the Assyrians take the northern Israelite tribes, their people, Zebulun and Naphtali, back to Assyria and settle their own pagan Gentile people in the rich countryside of Galilee. And that is why, look at verse 1 again, that is why Isaiah talks about this time being a time of contempt. You have Jews, or Gentiles rather, dwelling in the northern part of Israel. But contempt, Isaiah says, is not the end for God's people. Isaiah says in verse 1, one day contempt will turn to glory. Look at it. In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So those are three phrases. I'm almost done with context. Those are three phrases that all describe the same land mentioned just prior. Zebulun and Naphtali. You got it? I see a few heads. In other words, it's a complete turnaround. This land filled with Gentiles was a land of contempt because it was filled with Gentiles. But now this land of contempt is described as glorious. And my question when I read that was, how is that glorious? How is a Gentile-filled Israel, Galilee, good news? 
Here's the answer. Because that's where the Messiah would begin his ministry. By the Sea of Galilee. The Galilee, as Isaiah says here, of the Gentiles. Or the Galilee of the nations. So Isaiah foresees a day in verse 1. This is so cool. Isaiah sees a day in which the Gentiles will have the opportunity to hear from God's king and enter his kingdom. The Gentiles, by the way, are you and me. And that's the glory of Christmas when Christ dons his ministry at this place. Isn't that cool? I found that cool. All right. So from verses 2 to 7, Isaiah describes what this king is like. Names and titles. So, boys and girls, we're moving on to point 2, if you didn't catch that transition. There are six titles or names. Number 1, the king who will make a Gentile land glorious. And now he's not just making that northern province of Israel glorious. He's making the world glorious by the extending of his gospel. Number one, he is a great light. Verse two, the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them his light shone. The metaphor of light only makes sense against the background of darkness. Darkness refers to sin and blindness. So Isaiah describes a world that at this point in redemptive history, that by and large, had not received God's saving revelation through the law and the prophets. Did you hear that? Much of what happens and occurs in the Old Testament, then Gentiles are by and large, you have some scattering, Nineveh, things like that. But by and large, the Gentile world is closed off from God's saving revelation. People are dying in their sin without the word. But all that changes for the Gentile world when Christ is born. His reign begins the age of light for the nations, for us, so that we could hear the king and enter his kingdom. So God's king, as he says himself, is the light of the world. And John writes, get this, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, John says, does not overcome it. That is incredible. I think it's hard to believe. Darkness does not win. 
wars and rumors of wars seem to suggest otherwise. Terrorism, mass shootings, Christian persecution, cultural degradation, sexual addictions, marital strife, etc., etc., etc. It's hard to believe, John 1, 5, that light shines in darkness and darkness does not overcome it. And yet, as Kevin DeYoung says, quote, the spoiler is true. The spoiler is true. The darkness doesn't win. It didn't win at the manger he was born. It didn't win at the cross he rose. And it won't win at the second coming. Christ will win and does win all the time. This is why, by the way, verse 3, you and I are to be filled with joy. You have multiplied the nation and have increased its what? Joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The first advent of Christ is the beginning of light, but also the beginning of joy for the Christian. This is why we may not be dismayed or live in fear. The constitution of the Christian is one of gladness and absolute joy. Darkness does not win. Two, he is a conquering warrior. Verse four, he's a conquering warrior. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Woe! Yoke, the staff, the rod are tools of oppression often used against God's people. The point being made here by Isaiah, when the coming king comes, is that the, during the Messiah's reign, these weapons will be broken and destroyed. Verse 4, the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. So the Messiah, in other words, will be a better Gideon. If you know a little bit about your Old Testament history. Gideon's defeat, it's a wonderful story. Gideon's defeat of the Midianites, that's the reference here. You have broken as on the day of Midian. You see that there in verse 4? That's a reference to Gideon. Gideon's defeat of the Midianites was accomplished by God's power despite Gideon's weakness. 
Do you remember the weapons Gideon and his army had? Jars? Torches? That's basically it. They had nothing. Well, so too the Messiah will defeat the enemies of sin and death despite his apparent weakness as a lowly child. Christmas is absolutely stunning. He is the conquering warrior come to slay sin, death, and hell. So, we don't need to bring much to the battle. Praise God. Just faith. Just belief. 1 John, you ever read the Bible and think, that is incredible. 1 John 5.4 says this, this is the victory that has overcome the world. And you're thinking, whoa, he's going to launch into Christ and the cross and everything like that. John says, this is the victory that has overcome the world. What does he say? Our faith. Because that's where the battle lies for you and for me. Doesn't it? Do I believe God? Do I believe what He is and what He has done and what He will do? Do I press in by faith and have a trumpet-like, jar-like, weak faith in God Almighty? That's all we have to bring to the battle. Belief, not in self, in our conquering warrior. Three, he is a wonderful counselor. Six, verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Jesus Christ is the unsurpassed preacher. He is the superb teacher. He embodies and imparts the very wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, in Christ lay all the wisdom and knowledge of God. Colossians 2, 3. I take that to be saving knowledge of God. Those who heard him speak confessed, you know, no one speaks like him. He's different. He has an authority I haven't heard before. His words have an effect no one else's do. They are authoritative unchanged by man's opinion. He is the wonderful counselor, the unsurpassed preacher. Surely Proverbs 16, 24 is eminently true of our Lord Jesus Christ. Go there, Proverbs 16, 24. 
Proverbs is right after Psalms. Proverbs 16, 24. This must be true of Christ above all people. Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Sweet to the soul and health to the body. And those who put themselves under his counsel, this is precisely what they find. They find his word to be strikingly sweet and wonderful. Psalm 119, 103, the psalmist says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do you remember the story of Mary and Martha. I'm laughing because it's just a, it's a, such a simple short story, but it's so profound. Jesus comes into their home, and Martha is busy running around, and she's serving everybody and everything. And there's Mary sitting at the foot of Christ, listening to his teaching. Remember what Mary or Martha does? She goes up to Christ and says, Would you tell her to help me? I'm fairly busy around here. Tell her to help. And do you remember what our Lord's response was? Martha, Martha, Martha. You are anxious and troubled about many things. But Mary has chosen the good portion. Is that you? Are you like Mary and sit at the foot of our Lord? You know, some things can go in this life. We can let them go. And to sit at the feet of our wonderful counselor. Choose the better portion. Number four, beloved. Mighty God. So, great light, conquering warrior, wonderful counselor. Number four, mighty God. Back to Isaiah 9. His name shall be called wonderful counselor, mighty God. He is naturally God as an infant. He is naturally God, which means at no point did he become God. All right? Jesus is the everlasting God. So when you get a knock at your door, this is what you need to tell them. Romans 16, 26, Jesus is the everlasting God. For him, there is no past or future, but only a simple present in which he sees all things past, present, and future at once. He is God, a very God, as we confess in the creeds. In him, Colossians 2, 9 the whole fullness of deity dwells. We sing with Charles Wesley, do we not? We said it this morning. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate, 
deity. That's the banner of Christmas. That's our song. John Calvin said, quote, here is something marvelous. And whenever Calvin says something like that, I'm thinking, I should probably wake up a little bit. Here is something marvelous, Calvin says. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born of a virgin, to go about the earth and to hang upon the cross, yet he continually filled the world, even as he done from the beginning. Absolutely remarkable. I know Scripture talks about coming to earth, but don't you understand, you see, that God the Son filled the earth eternally. It, it, it wasn't as if he, he, he descended locationally in some way as, as God. Isn't that amazing? I thought it was amazing. So he's the mighty God. Fifth, everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Now, of all the names given to Jesus in Isaiah 9, 6, this one intrigues me the most because it's the one I least understand. I'll just be honest. Is Isaiah making some Trinitarian error here? He's the Father now? What's going on? Is, is this, is this Sabellianism? That, that there's really no real distinction between the Father and the Son? H how can Isaiah describe the Son? Do you get my question here? Okay. I thought I was having a conversation with myself there for a moment. <laughs> how is Jesus an everlasting Father? My answer this name is given to Jesus because he is, by analogy, by analogy, father-like in his treatment of us. That's my answer. He's father-like in his treatment of us. John 14, 18. He says this. The son does. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He's father-like in his treatment to us. John 14, 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, and, that, or, and where that where I am, you may be also. There's this father-like treatment of Christ towards his people that he protects us, fights for us, defends us, and provides to us, and runs to us. Charles Spurgeon said, quote, he is an everlasting father to those who trust him. And I hope today their heart is filled with trust as Christ runs to you by his spirit, through his word, and sets his grace upon you in the gospel. Six, and lastly, he's the prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. The root of sin is man's enmity with God. All right? Romans 8, 7. Do I need to repeat that? The root 
of sin is man's enmity with God. The natural man, the unbeliever, is at war with God and cannot get out of this war by himself. 1 Corinthians 2.14, that's the problem of, with this world. There is unrest and dispeace, if that's a word, in this world of ours, and it abounds. So if any of us is to have real peace with God and with others, it will be on, not on our terms, on his terms, revealed in his word, not on the basis of what we decide is sufficient for the task. Praise be to God, as we read earlier, the source of peace that we all need is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ is peace personified. He is peace in himself, Ephesians 2.14. As mediator, prophet, priest, king, he achieves and effects peace with God and with others. When he said it is finished at the cross, it was accomplished. This is why the angels sang at his birth in Bethlehem. Don't you love these words? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. They saw that baby boy and those angels said, that's peace right there. That's peace for sinners. My friend, are you among those with whom he is pleased? Or are you like those in Isaiah's days that you come to church with no intention to walk in God's ways? Are you among those with whom he is pleased? My Advent is so amazing. It's an invitation to end the war. It's an invitation to lay down the arms of enmity and receive the Prince of Peace. I'm going to leave you with one more quote from a Puritan. Samuel Rutherford. And then I'll be done. Rutherford says, I counsel you to think highly of Christ and of free, free grace more than you did before. Isn't that good? He then says, I think that I see more of Christ than I ever saw before. Yet I see but little of what may be seen. Oh, Rutherford says, that he, Christ, would draw back the curtains, that the king would come out of his gallery and palace, that I might see him. Oh, what a price can be given for him. Oh, his weight, his worth, his sweetness, his overpassing beauty. 
if 10,000 worlds of angels were created, they might all tire themselves in wondering at his beauty. Oh, Rutherford says, that I could come near to kiss his feet, hear his voice. And then Rutherford says, but oh, alas, I have little, little of him. And then he says, yet I long for more. Is Christ this to you this season? Let's pray. Our gracious God, you are so kind to us to come for us. For the nations. And we look back on 2,000 years and now the world is being filled. <laughs> being filled with your people. It started with two little territories in northern Israel. And now it encompasses the entire globe. We want more of Christ in our chest, Lord. More love to thee, more love to thee. Amen.